Do you love your work? Do you think it's possible? Well, you're about to find out. It's time for 48 Days to the Work You Love with Dan Miller on the 48 Days Online Radio Show. Whether you need a professional tune-up or a work overhaul, this is the program for you. Now, here's your host, Dan Miller. Well, happy February to everybody. Can you believe the first month of a new year is already gone? Is that amazing or what? You know, it's just breathtaking to see how quickly the time is going. We're in a brand new year, 2013. Some people worried about the year 2013 because they haven't had 13 in there. You know, you, if you're going up an elevator in a hotel, you never see the 13th floor. 13 is considered to be unlucky. Well, you know better than that. Luck has little to do with how our lives unfold. So we're prepared to make this an outstanding year, a spectacular year. You know, I was in a restaurant the other night and as always, you know, asked the waiter, gee, how are you doing? And he said, jubilant. And I thought, what an interesting word. I'm jubilant. I thought, I'm going to use that word for a while. We had an interesting conversation with the young guy who really was optimistic, sure of where he's going. I love meeting people like that. Well, we're going to talk about people who are on that path People who know that life is too short to just endure what we do the biggest part of our time during the week, that thing we call work, well, we're going to make it enjoyable. Here's some of the questions we're going to be looking at today. I'm 53 with arthritis in my knees. I'm looking for some career change that will allow me to continue working. Here's one. I want to have more control of my time, and I'm tired of depending on someone else for my income. Where can I look for possible jobs? Dan, what do you think about personality profile tests and helping to find a person's passion? Which ones seem to work for the people you work with? Uh, My wife and I are thinking about opening a small bookstore or yard shop or building a multi-level marketing. What are your thoughts? Uh, Dan, what's your view about using the equity in your present home to purchase an income property like a duplex? Dan, I love older cars, Jags, Austin Healy's, Morgan's, Bentley's. My idea is to buy, sell, trade up, fix up, and in general, turn over these machines. Do you have any ideas? Dan, I'm interested in learning about affiliate marketing. Um, What's your opinion about online network marketing? Dan, I just finished writing a book, contacted a publisher. They want to publish the book, but they want $9,000 to do it. It seems funny that the first publisher I submit to wanted to publish my book. Well, we'll talk about how funny that is. Well, those are some of the questions we're going to be looking at and more. Now, what I did not preface this with is these are all questions that came in in response to a teleseminar that we did about a week ago on second act careers. So these are questions from people who, well, the subtitle of the book we discussed, Second Act Careers with Nancy Colomer, are 50 plus ways to profit from your passions during semi-retirement. So these questions came from people who are responding to that teleseminar, people who know they're approaching retirement, whether they want to or not in some cases, but we're going to continue with those questions. So yeah, there's going to be a little bit of a theme, but now here's the deal. It doesn't matter if you're 18 years old. The questions really are relevant to anybody's situation, no matter where you are. We do need to look at these things. We do need to look at the changing work models. And it doesn't matter if you're, again, 24 or 74. 
So I'm going to be taking some more of these questions because we had so many that came in. Now, I'm going to link to this in the podcast notes, the teleseminar that I already did with author Nancy Colmer. She's a friend of ours and did a, she's provided a lot of resources for people over the years, but her brand new book is Second Act Careers. So I'll, I'll link to the 70-minute interview that we did together on these same kind of questions, but specifically related to people who are in their 50s or 60s. But I'm going to go ahead and pick up with some of the questions that we've got in today's podcast as well. So this is kind of a theme podcast, although I, I hesitate to really call it an over 50 question because, again, you could be 26 and asking any of the questions that we've got in here. Well, speaking of getting a little older, here's our quotation for the day. It comes from Warren Buffett, who said, I know people who have a lot of money and they get testimonial dinners and hospital wings named after them. But the truth is that nobody in the world loves them. When you get to my age, you'll measure your success in life by how many of the people you want to have love you actually do love you. That's the ultimate test of how you've lived your life. I think that's pretty cool. How many people love you? That's a test of success, not how many buildings have your name on them or what your stock portfolio looks like. Well, we know the work arena is changing. And a lot of people who have been in the same jobs for a long time wake up one morning and are surprised that the work world has changed so dramatically. Now, the interesting thing is a lot of the Gen Wires, those between 17 and 34, they do realize how the world of work is changing. And they're saying, hey, I'm cool with that. I don't expect to get one job and stay with the company for 35 years. I don't expect that at all. I see what happened to mom and dad. So I'm cool with the idea of working for a company for eight months or 10 months. And then I go to Breckenridge and ski for a couple months and I come back and work again, you know, in and out of the workplace. It doesn't mean that they are starting, stopping. They can continue in an upward career path, even by going from organization to organization. But in the baby boomers, we didn't really expect that, did we? We expected to get that great job, stay with the company, move up vertically within the same company, perhaps get those promotions, higher income levels, and then be taken care of by that company in those golden years of retirement. Well, that model has pretty well been dismantled. I mean, we know that it just hardly exists at all anymore. We have to realize that you need to create your own retirement. So how do you do that? How do you prepare for living out your entire life, even after those most productive work years? Well, a couple things bear on this. For one, when we talk about productivity waning as we get older, that really relates to doing production work. So if you were working for the railroad, laying railroad ties, yeah, your ability to produce is going to diminish when you hit 60 years old. But what if you understand technology? What if you've been doing web designs or computer programming or you have a little store on eBay? If you're involved in those kind of things, what if you, I mentioned somebody wants to have a bookstore and we'll talk a little bit about that, but what if you have a bookstore that's online and you're selling books to people all around the world? What happens when you are not able to uh, run a five-minute mile anymore, you're not able to uh, 
deadlift 180 pounds, it doesn't really matter because you're not doing work that is production work that is tied to your physical prowess and ability. No, you're doing knowledge work. And more and more people are doing knowledge work, even if they're 22 years old, just coming out of college, they're doing knowledge work. So can you continue to do that effectively until the day you die? Absolutely. And there are people whose productivity increases right up to the day they die. Now here's, I I wish I could draw a visual for you here, but when we are talking about production work, we tend to get the old bell curve where you start when you're 22 years old and boom, you're, you peak at about 45 and then you start going down, you know, so if you're in construction or heavy equipment or, or certainly in sports, it's even quicker than that. My goodness. If you're in, uh, in professional sports, you're going to peak at about you know, 24 years old and be pretty much out of the game by the time you're 32. I mean, it's much more dependent on your physical ability there than really anything else I can think of. But in a lot of other work, if it was dependent on your physical ability, you may peak at about 45 and by about 55, you know, you really are kind of ready for retirement. But that's not true in the world of work that we are in today. If you write, speak, coach, and do online marketing, do anything in technology. I mean, we can go on and on and on. If you provide a delivery service for people or you're doing book cover designs for a publishing company, I mean, there are thousands of things and really the better opportunities where it has little connection to your physical strength and ability. It simply has to do with your ability to produce. And people don't care how old you are. They don't care if you are 20 or you're 70. They want to know what is it that you can produce. Now, if you prepare in that way, it ought to be an exciting thing because then instead of seeing the bell curve where you start to diminish when you're 45, a lot of times we see kind of a gradual increase perhaps until somebody's 50. Then they take a fresh look at who they are, how God has gifted them, what they're really here to do, figure out what their primary purpose in life is, and they go into the most productive, explosive 20 years of their life. So we see an amazing elevation the trajectory goes up dramatically from 50 to 70 or 80. I mean, people like Peter Drucker, who I think he died at about 93 years old, but I mean, until the day he died, I mean, he was an incredibly effective speaker and presenter, consultant. People would come to his house and sit around his living room just to soak up his wisdom. I mean, what an amazing opportunity to be able to live in that way. So the workplace is changing. So when we talk to people who are 50, my goodness, or 60, are you really at the end of your work career? Do you just have to figure out how to maintain, you know, being able to go to the golf course every day? I mean, people who do that tend to burn out. They get tired of doing that pretty quickly. And they're saying, what can I do that really gives me a sense of accomplishment? A lot of people retire too soon thinking they're going to enjoy those golden years and that thing we call in America retirement, which incidentally, that is very much an American term. It's absent in a lot of cultures. There are countries like Tibet where there's no word for retirement. In the Bible, there's no word for retirement, which ought to be a clue as well as to how God views that time where we are not productive anymore, where we're just idle and just using resources well, I won't go into, I won't go down that 
bunny trail right now, but I could. My dad, as an example, he was a farmer. So he did, he was concerned about his ability to continue doing that kind of physical work. So he sold out at 62 years old. He sold out at 62 years old. Now he did pretty well in farming, so they were okay financially. And he thought, well, I'll just, um, you know, grow a garden, be nice to the neighbors. What he did is he got a van and he started driving his Amish neighbors. You know, we, we came out of that heritage. His parents, my dad's parents were Amish. So he understood that culture. So he became the guy that they called if they needed to go to a doctor or to a wedding or a funeral in another state. He'd home in his van, take him. And he, he had a lot of years of enjoyment doing that. But he, re, he retired from farming at 62. He died at 97. That's 35 more years. That's the, a full working career for most people. So we had to figure out some things that he could do in that period of time to be productive. But he never felt as productive as when he had been a farmer because so much of his focus was on being able to do things physically. Well, again, the world of work is changing. Let me go into some of the questions here, and we'll just, we'll just kind of unpack as many of these as we can. Shelly from Jackson, Michigan says, I'm 53 with arthritis in my knees. It will only get worse with age now. I'm already having trouble with a lot of time on my feet. I'm looking for some career I can change to that will allow me to continue working. Well, a couple things, Shelly. For one thing, at 53, I would say don't just capitulate. Don't just give in and assume that your arthritis is going to get worse. There's a whole lot of things you can do health-wise, nutrition-wise, that can stop or even turn around the effect of arthritis. really at 53 it's certainly too young to just give in to this is the way it's going to be and it's only going to get worse we had dinner the other night with some friends and he just turned 70 and he's really struggling with arthritis and pasty skin and some other things and i started telling him about some of the things that i do to make sure that i stay in good health i mean i've mentioned some of those things here but i do some pretty radical things and my health is amazing and he was like oh gee could i really do that i'm well, sure you can, if you just choose to do that. You can either just complain and be sick, or you can choose at least try some things that could dramatically change the rest of your life. Now, that being said, John, I don't mean to be harsh on you about arthritis. If you have it, then certainly it's something you need to uh, learn to deal with. If you can't find things that alleviate it in any way, are there things you can do where you can continue working? Yeah, most of the things I've already mentioned here are things that are done that depend on knowledge and production, not on physical ability. So there are things where you can be online, be on the computer, where you can produce, draw, write, speak, coach. I mean, there's a whole lot of things you can do. I mean, most of the most desirable things that you can do that you can move into, even things like art, could possibly be done even with your condition of art. So, so don't let the arthritis be the determining factor. Go back and reevaluate your passion, those things that you really are drawn to and be confident that you can embrace those and develop those as the focus of what you do. Even if you are having some limitations physically, Shelley says in the, in the past and currently I'm an executive assistant. I worked as a travel agent in the past and an event planner I do not want to continue as an executive assistant. Now, listen to a couple of these things. They're pretty critical in here. I want to have more control of my time, and I'm tired of depending on someone else for my income. I would like to be able to live in Michigan for six months and Florida for six months. 
I'm 53. My husband is 14 years older and retired. I do not have a retirement that I will be getting from an employer. Where can I look for possible jobs? Now, let me back up a little bit here, and I'm just going to let all of you come up with the solutions for Shelly. She says, I want to have more control of my time and I'm tired of depending on someone else for my income. I don't want to be able to live in Michigan for six months and Florida for six months. Where can I look for possible jobs? Um, Shelly, you're asking for both sides of the coin here. You can't have it both ways. If you want to have more control of your time and you're tired of depending on someone else for your income, that's fine. But that doesn't position itself so that you go look for the next job that clearly identifies what are you going to do that is not a job what are you going to do to be productive so that you are in the driver's seat so that you're not dependent on someone else for your income so you can live in michigan for six months and florida for six months but i mean there's not a job that i know of now, I'm sure that it's possible, anything is possible, but that's more than a needle in a haystack to get what you want there and have it look like a job where somebody's going to be, give you a, a paycheck every Friday. So what you're going to have to do to blend with what you want here is, what is it that you could do? Is it going to be a little eBay store? Are you going to write and speak? Can you do graphic design? Can you do web programming? Can you do um, website design? And can you provide a service for people where in those six months on either side of the country there, you can uh, provide a delivery service for the elderly where you take them to their doctor's appointments. I mean, come up with 20 things that you could do like that. You can have what you're asking for, but don't kid yourself in thinking that an employer is going to give you what you're asking for. You have to be more creative. You're going to be outside of the traditional job. And that's certainly not unrealistic. I mean, when we know that we're rapidly approaching the time when only 50% of the American workforce will be employees, the rest of them are going to be all those new terms that we're hearing. Contingency worker, independent contractor. I mean, independent contractor means that at the end of the year, you get a 1099 rather than a W-2. It just means that, you know, you did, you provided a service for somebody, they paid you, but you weren't a traditional employee, so they didn't withhold and all that. We're right here at the, uh, of course, end of the first year of the month. So everybody has to get their 1099s out. I've been amazed at watching the steady stream of 1099s come in for me this year. Now it's really gotten ridiculous. I mean, even if you get money like through PayPal, just as part of your business, they have to send you a 1099. So a lot of my income is being recorded in as 1099s because any place that I spoke, any place that I coached and consulted, I mean, those, those places all have to send 1099s. So I have a whole bunch of them that are coming in and we send those out as well. We have probably 30 or so that we send out to people who provided services for us, but your work will be done as a 1099, not as a W2. All right. John says, John from uh, Stevensville says, what do you think about personality profile tests to help a person define their passion? Which ones seem to work for people you work with? 
Now, if we can use personality profiles, I, I like to use the disc. You hear us talk about that. You can go to 48days.com and you can see the disc there that we highly recommend. And that's our hottest selling product, incidentally. So we, we sell thousands of those and it's very helpful for you to know your personality style. That's looking at behavior. That's not looking at an aptitude or ability or intelligence. It's behavior. How do you relate to other people? What kind of environments are you most comfortable in? I mean, those are the kind of things that do help define what is the right working environment for you. But when we talk about what does it take to be successful? You know, what does it take for somebody to have their own business? Let's just go there. When I start listing the things that I think are helpful, I find that I touch on a lot of things that almost may seem contradictory. Like, is it better to be an extrovert or an introvert? A dreamer or a realist? A thinker or a doer? To be left-brained or right-brained, that's a hot topic right now. To be dominant or reserved, analytical or expressive, super intelligent or just normal, gorgeous or average. I mean, we can go on and on. Really, here's, here's the deal. I've come to the conclusion there really is no right or predictable pattern that leads to successful business operation. I, I think a lot of us defy any kind of explanation or commonalities or categories. I mean, the business person, the business people that I know that are extremely successful, they use both sides of their brains. I, I, Joanne, my wife, had me do a test just this last week to identify a left brain, right brain. Now, left brain, that's the analytical, detailed, you know, conservative, cautious kind of side. So if you are a bookkeeper, an accountant or whatever, we would expect you to have that. And then the right side, your right brain is that creative, artistic, expressive, outgoing kind of side. She had me do a test and it, it identified me as 52% left brain, 48% right brain, almost an even split. Well, anyway, I find people are using both sides of their brains. The right side can pour out their dreams or passions and fantasies. The left side takes that and creates patterns and systems and allow results, you know, that benefit everybody and produce income generating systems. When you can have the soul of an artist and your business is a shaped release of that art, you can be a logical, precise person. Your business brings life to those otherwise boring and useless details. But really, I guess if I had to kind of summarize, the common trait is that people who succeed, whether in their own business or as a trusted employee, are people who know how to set goals and take action. So if, if there's a test you're looking for, it ought to identify that. Is this a person who can set goals and take action? That's what we want. Well, Mike from Grandview says, my wife and I are now in our early 60s. We have good business experience, but are cautious about large investments. We've been looking into some retirement income ideas, things from operating a small book store or yard shop to building a multi-level marketing. We value other people's experiences. Look forward to your comments. Well, Mike, when, when we talk about in your retirement and you think about opening that quaint little embroidery store down the street in your town or that little bookstore or yard shop, I mean, we have to look at how the world has changed. I mean, those things may seem quaint. They may have a real natural attraction and think, oh my gosh, we could just sit there and talk to the friendly neighbors when they come in. 
Well, our world of buying has changed dramatically. Let's take a bookstore as an example. I happen to love books. It'd be really easy, and, and we live in a one of those really quaint towns. I mean, Franklin, Tennessee is listed as like one of the top 10 destinations for small towns in America or something like that. But anyway, it's a beautiful little town. We love walking the little streets down there. Go down to you know, Sweet CC's and get a little yogurt. And we do see a lot of friends down there when we're down there. But having a shop there is something else. I mean, if I open a little bookstore there, I'm going to have about a five-mile radius of prospective customers. Five miles. I mean, people don't drive 20 miles to go to a bookstore. So I've got about five miles. So I have to get a pretty big percentage of the prospects in that five-mile radius who are going to buy books. And of course, book buyers are a very tiny percentage of the general population anyway. If then I open that little bookstore, I not only do I have a real tiny target audience, but then I've got to deal with entry-level employees, sign permits, leases, workman's comp. I have to deal with evening and weekend hours of being open when I don't want to be tied up. I mean, there's a whole lot of things that are negatives. There is no way in the world being a book lover as I am, there is no way in the world I would ever entertain the idea of opening a bookstore. What do we do instead? Well, we just make those books available online. And theoretically, then we have access to everybody in the world who has access to the internet. We can get a real tiny, tiny percentage of the prospects of book buyers in that market and still knock it out of the park. And that bookstore operates 168 hours a week. It operates when I sleep. I don't have to be there on evenings and weekends. It just operates all the time. I mean, that to me is an appealing proposition. So when you talk about those things that may seem kind of quaint and homey, but, but also think about how people's buying habits have changed. If we use books again as an example, I mean, somebody may come into my little bookstore and to make a profit, I have to charge $20 on a book because I've got a small profit margin anyway, and I'm trying to keep the lights on and pay the help. And somebody will come in and look at a book and they think, man, this is a really great book. They pull out their iPhone, scan the barcode, see that it's available on Amazon for $11.56 and order it while they're in my bookstore. I mean, it's just the way buying patterns have changed. We got to be realistic about that and not be attracted just because there's some kind of nostalgia to an idea that doesn't really make sense business-wise anymore. Tom says, what's your view about using the equity in your present home to purchase an income property like a duplex? Well, I love real estate. I mean, real estate is real estate. I mean, it's so different than stocks and bonds and mutual funds, annuities, all those things that are just kind of pie in the sky. You just hope somebody else is smarter than you that's managing them for the most part. But real estate is real. You can touch it, feel it, walk on it. I love real estate. And right now, I mean, the market is amazing. So if you're going to do that, become knowledgeable about it. I mean, take some courses. I mean, get your real estate license if you want to, not that that's necessary, but frame somehow getting knowledgeable about real estate. So you really understand it. Then you can go out. I mean, my son-in-law buys rental properties, but he may look at a hundred properties, make offers on seven and buy one. 
I mean, that's what you ought to do. As opposed to, I've got another friend who decided he wanted to be in a rental property. He looked at one property, bought it, and now he's way upside down on the property. He's upset about the kind of people he's getting as prospective renters for it. He, he didn't take time to learn about the market and learn about real estate. So if you learn about it, then, I mean, there's no magic about real estate, but anything that you would want to do using the equity from your home, just learn how to do that really well. And then sure, that's, that's fine. Do that. Well, Patrick says, I love older 50s and 60 foreign cars, Jags, Austin, Healy's, Morgan's, Bentley's. My idea is to buy, sell, trade up, fix up, and in general, turn over these machines. Do you have any ideas in particular? Thanks in advance. By the way, I retired at 56 after running my own HVAC business for 24 years. My employees bought me out and they are doing excellently. Well, what a cool thing. So you love old cars, man. So do I. And what you're talking about is right up my alley. When you say that you love Jags, Austin Healy's, Morgan's Bentley's, I mean, I think you can rock and roll, have a lot of fun and make a whole lot of money doing that. But because you are specializing, if you're just one more used car dealer, how do you make yourself unique? How do you make yourself remarkable? Because there's hundreds of them in any town you go into and they just have, again, you know, used Toyotas, Hondas, Lexus. And I'm thinking, how in the world can you survive when you can go anywhere in town and see 20 more of exactly what you've got? But if you've got 50s and 60s, Jags, Austin Healy's, Morgan's, Bentley's, nobody can price shop you. You've got things that are one of a kind when you buy them. I mean, when I was in the car business years ago in California, I loved having, I made a lot of money with like 53 and 54 Ford pickup trucks. I also had the stretch limo Cadillacs that we we would get from like funeral homes. Well, it, it turns out that high end realtors really liked those cars as well. So we get the extended body Cadillacs black from funeral homes and sold them to realtors. I, I really rolled with that. I, I could sell anything I could get my hands on and we became a conduit for that particular kind of car. So I love what you're doing, Patrick. And I, I think you can, you can have a whole lot of fun and do that really, really well. Well, I mean, look, you know, I've got a lot of questions here that, that, where there is a fair amount of regret. I want to address this a little bit where people are saying, you know, I realize now at 55 or 60 that I didn't really follow my dream. I didn't really do what I wanted to do. I'm afraid that all I did was just be responsible, pay the bills. And I never really did something that would leave a legacy. I mean, we see that kind of existential angst in nursing homes and retirement centers being coming out in a lot of frustration and anger because people realize it, maybe it's too late to do what they wanted to do. But, you know, sometimes we don't have a realistic overview of what our contribution was. Sometimes we try to frame it in ways that are not realistic. Maybe you didn't make $100 million and now you have a wing at the hospital that's got your name on it. Maybe you didn't do that. Maybe your investment was in the lives of you know, people who are marginalized. You're a social worker or a teacher. Maybe your contribution came in other ways. You know, there was a, a movie a few years ago, Mr. Holland's Opus. 
Remember that movie? I mean, what a great movie. Mr. Holland wanted to be a symphony conductor. He wanted to write these magnificent pieces of music and be known for that. And yet all of a sudden he was losing his job at the school and all he had ever done was be a lonely teacher. Well, there's a little clip. I pulled up a little clip here I want us to listen to right from the end of that movie. This is Mr. Holland's opus. Mr. Holland had a profound influence on my life, on a lot of lives, I know. And yet I get the feeling that he considers a great part of his own life misspent. Rumor had it he was always working on this symphony of his, and this was going to make him famous, rich, probably both. But Mr. Holland isn't rich, and he isn't famous, at least not outside of our little town. So it might be easy for him to think himself a failure. And he would be wrong. Because I think he's achieved a success far beyond riches and fame. Look around you. There is not a life in this room that you have not touched. And each one of us is a better person because of you. We are your symphony, Mr. Holland. We are the melodies and the notes of your opus, and we are the music of your life. Isn't that a great piece? You know, there are a whole lot of people need to be reminded of that, that the contributions they made may not have put their name in light somewhere, and yet they invested in the lives of people, developed loving, caring relationships for which they'll be remembered for a very, very long time. Well, let me get a couple more questions here. Amy says, I'm not semi-retiring. I'm starting a magazine telling the stories of social entrepreneurs and investors who are solving big problems for social good. My question is, would you launch quickly with just a website or would you launch when you're ready with a print magazine in the digital version? I plan to launch at South by Southwest, but I need capital. Thanks for your viewpoint. Well, Amy, I am um, more than a little concerned about starting a magazine. When you look at what has happened to major magazines in the last 10 years, probably 50% of them are no longer even in existence. I mean, major magazines like Time, Life, you know, are gone. When, when you start a magazine... Again, there, there are a couple factors here we have to look at in terms of how people get information. For one thing, when somebody gets something in a magazine, if it's news of any kind, it's extremely dated. We expect to know about news three minutes after it happened. By the time it gets to print and gets sent out, it's extremely stale. It has little relevance because of the way that we are have been spoiled in getting news. But even those things that are maybe lifestyle or cooking or decorating, even those that have no time sensitivity to the content are challenged. There are three things that have to be in place for a magazine to survive. Number one is subscriptions. Number two is newsstand sales. And number three is advertising. Now, living here in Nashville, Tennessee, I have seen countless 
magazine started by really great, wonderful people who had pure hearts and they're going to start a Christian magazine. Those come and go in droves because they want to have great content and they want to give them away and they have a very poor advertising marketing strategy. And they think, well, if I just get people to take out a few ads and you can't have a magazine survive on just advertising. If you don't have newsstand sales and subscriptions, it's impossible. I mean, I defy you to find an example. It's impossible to make it work over the long haul. And we see magazines, even the magazines that I really love, like Fast Company and Inc. and Entrepreneur. I mean, we see them go down to almost a brochure size because it's a really tough model to work. Now, if you have a model to be on in a digital format, I might encourage you to just develop that, develop the content around online news and resources, be in an online magazine rather than a physical magazine at all. Now, if that is true, then it really brings in question, why do you need capital? Why would you need to raise capital? You can start an online magazine today with no capital. So I'm not sure exactly how you were going to develop this, and I know that I'm not giving you a lot of encouragement, but this is not a time to start a traditional magazine. You can look around you, and nobody I know is starting new ones. The ones that are trying to hang on by the skin of their teeth, even major magazines like O, Oprah's Magazine, you look at that, it's half the size that it was two years ago. I mean, advertisers are saying, golly, we're not going to pay $25,000 for a full page ad in there because it has such a short life. We can do something in another format where we get in front of people with a lot more success than what we can expect to do through a magazine. So they aren't stepping up the plate and advertising drives those the success of those magazines. Believe me, good content is not enough to create a magazine, period. Good content will never make a magazine survive. It has to have advertising, subscription, and newsstand sales. Paul from Higby, I'm not sure, not sure where Higby is, says, did the financial preparation for retirement factor into this equation? If one has no money set aside or coming in and one is fairly well prepared for this time in life, In other words, how much weight does one's financial situation have in decision-making? Well, it has a lot of weight to do with it. But then again, sometimes it doesn't have really any impact at all because I see a lot of people who really have prepared well for retirement years. So finances are not really an issue. And they can live till they're 180 years old and still have enough money to do that. But you know what? They still are looking for What's a reason to get up tomorrow morning? What am I going to do that gives me a sense of continuing accomplishment and fulfillment and meaning? Without that, life isn't worth living. So doing something productive in retirement is often not about just making money. It's what am I going to do that gives my life meaning? And so we people, see people continue on and on and on. Of course, you know lots of examples, as I do, of people who have done exactly that. Now, on the other hand, certainly there are a lot of people who are approaching retirement age who realize they don't have enough money to survive. So they do need to create income on a continuing 
method. And that's okay. I mean, that shouldn't be, God, that, that, that shouldn't, be, shouldn't be surprising, but it, it shouldn't be startling, alarming. I mean, just because you are 55 doesn't mean that you're incapable of creating income. Make sure that you are looking for resources. Get Nancy Calmer's book. And again, I'll have that in the podcast notes, a link to that. Second Act Careers. 50 plus ways to profit from your passions during semi-retirement. She talks about a lot of people that she interviewed in there who are doing really unusual things. Sometimes people that have been presented with what would seem to be an obstacle, a disabled spouse or child that they have to care for. And yet that becomes the source of what they do. I mean, we see that again and again and again. One of the examples in second act careers is a lady who has a, a an autistic son but his art is really unusual and she's created an entire business around her son, her autistic son's art. So they go places together and present and he sells his drawings. I mean, it's just a delightful story. So oftentimes the things, even that we see as an obstacle, I mean, I mentioned a lady who had arthritis a few minutes ago. I mean, you may start some kind of an online business or write about or speak about that particular thing and what people can do to deal with that. I mean, often we see that being the, the kind of initiator for what people go on and do successfully in business. Chris says, I was, so anyway, I'm just reviewing that, that question, you know, does finances have anything to do with what we do in retirement? Yeah, it does. But in retirement and work in general, we look for income and satisfaction, um, so both of those are okay at any stage. Chris says, I was recently laid off and at only 48, I think of my career as almost half over. Is it ever too early to have a second act career or even a third? No, it's not. And we see that again and again, where people change dramatically. People change professions. People who are attorneys or dentists or physicians change and do something totally different for another season in their career. And look at it in that way. I mean, it's healthy to do that. Just look at nature. I mean, we're right here at the spring of the year. I mean, look at, look all around you. You see all these trees and they look dead. The bushes are dead. Well, no, they're not. They're not dead. They're just in a season of renewal. They're just going through a period of time, a very realistic, expected, natural, normal, and healthy period of time where they're restoring all their energy and resources that are going to come out in full bloom in just a few weeks. We need to look at these transitions, inevitable and relentless, sometimes unwelcome and unexpected in our own lives in the same way. It's a transition, but expect to come out on the other side with something full blown and perhaps even more enjoyable and even more profitable than what you were doing previously. Blaine says, I've just finished writing a book. Now, I want to squeeze this one in here. I've just finished writing a book and have contacted a publisher. They want to publish the book, but they want uh, between five and $9,000 to do it according to the package I want. How do I know when I'm getting ripped off? It just seems funny that the first publisher I submit to wants to publish it. Well, wants to publish it is, is really a tricky kind of term. Yes. I mean, you, you give me $9,000, Blaine, I'll publish your book. Trust me, because I can do it for a whole lot less money. I can make money in doing that. And there are a lot of publishers, quote, out here who are, in fact, doing exactly what you described. Yes, they want you to bring your book their way. 
And yes, they will publish it. Now, this doesn't mean you're being ripped off. You have to be realistic about what it is you're looking for and are they providing that? I mean, companies like B&H, Brahman Holman Publishing, the Baptist Publishing Arm, they have a self-publishing company. Thomas Nelson, biggest Christian publisher in the world, have, has a very respected self-publishing arm called Westbow. Westbow. So you can go there. You can choose. Do you want them to do the cover design? Do you want them to do the interior layout? Do you want them to edit it? Do you want them to get the ISBN code that needs to go in the back? Do you want them to make it available through Amazon and other distributors like Barnes and Noble, Books a Million? If you do, you're going to pay a package fee for that. And it's likely to be five to $9,000, just like what you're describing. So does that mean that your book is going to be a raving success? Does that mean that the publisher thinks it's good content? No, not necessarily. They're publishing it, meaning they're printing it because it's a money-making proposition for them to do so. If you are asking, do you think this publisher is confident this book is going to be a great success? That's a different story. I mean, you can then take your book to Thomas Nelson or to Simon Schuster to Viking, to Doubleday, to Random House. You can go through all kinds of public, go to the traditional publishers with a proposal and see if they accept your book. But even there, it gets a little dicey because it can be a really good book that they recognize as a really good book. But you know what they're going to ask you? What's your platform? Who's listening to you now? What kind of an audience do you have? If you don't have an audience, they aren't interested in publishing your book. It doesn't matter if it's the next war and peace. So that gets a little tricky just because they reject it doesn't mean it's not a good book. So if you have a book, you want to get it out there, then it's not unrealistic to work with a publisher as you're describing and go ahead and choose a package that makes sense, pay them the money and get in the game. You can also look at things like create space through Amazon. It's probably going to, you can get in there for a lot less money than what you're describing here. And create space is one that has a lot of credibility. Amazon puts you right in their system, the largest bookseller in the world. So you have that. But again, just being on Amazon doesn't mean anything. You have to drive traffic, go there and buy the book. I mean, Amazon is not a marketing company. They're not going to promote your book. They're a distribution company. They can print and distribute it. So if you send buyers there, they can fulfill their orders. I know it gets, gets complicated, but, um, that's the way it is in the changing world of publishing. And again, the questions we're talking about today had to do with changes in the workplace. And it doesn't matter how old you are, young or old, there are things that you really need to understand if you're going to be a player. A lot of people, the, the concern, the frustration about approaching retirement is that people have not kept up with the changes. So they've done one job for 20 years, but in that period of time, they've not kept up with the things that have changed. I worked with a high level, I mean, $350,000 CFO, chief financial officer of a major company a couple of years ago had been there. He had been there 26 years. So he'd moved up and was making that exorbitant kind of salary. And they all of a sudden decided, whoa, we can get somebody and pay him a whole lot less money. We need to phase this guy out. Gave him a, a generous severance package, but he was out. And I thought as chief financial officer of a major company, surely he really understands how the work world has changed, what the best opportunities are. No, no, no. His description was for 26 years. I've had head down, pencil up. 
head down, pencil up. I'll never forget that graphic, visual image he gave me of being totally out of touch with how the world had changed around him. Don't be caught in that. Well, thanks for being part of this community. We're at the end of our time already. Get involved in the 48days.net community. If you haven't already, I'll have some of the resources that I mentioned here listed in the, in the podcast notes. Again, you can go there. Check out Nancy Calmer's book, Second Act Careers. It's a great resource. Give you lots of ideas for things you can do, whether you're approaching retirement or not. Things you can do on the side. You may be 30 and decide that you want to do something where you aren't really vulnerable to the company you're working for and you start your own little business on the side. Now's a great time to do that. This is not being paranoid or suspicious. It's just being realistic about the changing world out there and gives us more fuel for how we can all find or create work that is meaningful, purposeful, productive, and profitable. Have a great week.